0: We're on the road in Savannah, Georgia, where First Liberty Institute's Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy is holding something called the Savannah Seminar. It's an opportunity for young people to learn about and discuss the importance of religious liberty to a free society. I'm Stuart Shepard. Uh, this is First Liberty Live, and our guest today is Mark David Hall. He's a professor of politics, right, at right. George Fox University out in Oregon. He's also a senior fellow with the Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy, which is an initiative of First Liberty Institute, and the church bells are ringing for your introduction. Yes, they are. <laughs> it's fantastic. He has a new book out. He's he's worked on about a dozen, either written, co uh, edited or co-edited about a dozen books about the founders and religious freedom. He's got a new book out that's just out this year, which is, I want to get the title right, the title is Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. Hi, Mark. That's right. Hi. How you doing, Stuart? Everybody hearing this is thinking, I could be on Jeopardy and I would recognize that quote, but I don't remember where it's <laughs> from. Tell us where it's from.
1: Sure. Well, it's from the book of Leviticus and it has to do with the year of Jubilee, but more important in the American context, it's inscribed on in the Liberty Bell proclaim liberty throughout all the land. The Liberty Bell, of course, was cast years before the war for American independence, but it came to be a a prominent symbol of American independence. Even more interesting, though, in my humble opinion, Sojourner Truth, the great African American abolitionist, used to go to revival meetings to stream up a banner with this verse on it, proclaim liberty throughout all the land, and then she would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then she would preach about the sins of his people, his people, of course, being slave owners. And so wonderful woman sharing the gospel, fighting injustice. That sets
0: up the next question really well. The first four chapters of your book establish the foundation and origins for religious freedom, religious liberty in in the United States, this new experiment here. But you highlight how scholars have distorted that founding. Tell us what you see.
1: Sure. So this book is written in response to the 1619 Project. And really, many, many scholars who argue that in America, Christianity has largely been a force of oppression, of repression. And what we've had to do as a nation is overcome Christianity, either with progressive forms of religion or by abandoning religion altogether. And so, what I do in this art book is I argue that from the pilgrims to the present day, Christians have in fact been motivated by their faith to fight for liberty and equality for all Americans. Now let me hasten to say I recognize, of course, that some Christians have appealed to the Bible to defend slavery and sexism and poverty and and other evils. And so without minimizing
0: that, I say on balance, Christianity has been a force for good. And that's something I appreciate about the book is you don't try to swing the pendulum all the way the other direction. You're trying to give an honest look rather than the distorted view that we see in so many stories and headlines today. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's exactly my intent. Very good. All right. I I want to focus on chapters 5, 6, and 7. Uh, you dive into the discussion of separation of church and state. It's a phrase that we hear a lot, and people take very different points of view about what it means. But you point out something that most people probably don't know, and that's where that originally came to be. It's really from a movement toward anti-Catholicism, right? Now, that's exactly right. So if I you, jump back
1: for a minute to my last book, Did America Have a Christian Founding? Yeah. In that book, I think I demonstrate indisputably that America's founders embraced a very robust understanding of religious liberty, and they were starting to turn against religious establishments, by which they meant that they did not want national or state churches. And in my, to my way of thinking, this is a very good thing. I don't want to see a church of the United States of America. Exactly. You have Thomas Jefferson with his famous letters to the Danbury Baptists. where he mentions a wall of separation between church and state but really there's almost no evidence that any founder wanted anything like that and even jefferson in his own private actions and actions as president did not act as if there was a wall of separation between church and state so where did this notion that church and state have to be separated come from basically i argue barring from the great legal scholar philip hamburger it came from the profound anti-catholic animus of the mid-19th to mid-20th century Basically, America was a Protestant country. In the late 18th century, 98% of Americans of European descent are Protestants. When more Catholics started coming to the nation in the 19th century, Protestants were very distrustful of them. Now, these Catholics not unreasonably wanted Catholic schools for their kids, and to the extent to which there were public schools, they were Protestant schools. And so they said in, in Philadelphia and elsewhere, hey, give us a share of our tax dollars so we can fund our Catholic schools. And so in this context, American Protestants started saying, no, 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 I'm sorry, we can't do that. Yeah. We have the separation of church and state. <laughs> we aren't going to fund sectarian schools. But what's important to recognize is by sectarian, they make Catholic. They were perfectly happy to fund Protestant schools, not Catholic schools. A great illustration of this comes from my home state of Oregon. In 1922, Oregon banned every private school in the state. Now that sounds neutral, but every private school with one exception was a Roman Catholic school. And so really this was just anti-Catholic animus.
0: You bring up in the book uh, a case that we uh, worked on, which is out of Maine, won a Supreme Court victory last year, which dealt with this very issue, which is the idea of of tuition funding for any private school you want to go to unless it's a religious school. This is a direct out uh, outcome of that, right?
1: That's exactly right. A few years ago, there was a Supreme Court opinion out of Montana, U.S. Supreme Court opinion, where it basically struck down the Blaine Amendment in Montana, which said we aren't going to fund any religious schools at all. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion. Maine was a little more complicated. They would actually fund religious schools as long as they were not pervasively sectarian, as long as they were not too religious. Yeah. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. You can't discriminate on the basis of of religion, inappropriately so.
0: So you're hitting on this, what is a proper understanding of the separation of church and state? How should we talk about it? So I do not like the phrase separation of church and state because it can
1: mean many things. It can mean what Jesus was talking about when he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God. Yeah. All Christians, it seems to me, have to recognize that the church and the state are separate institutions. I prefer to focus on the law in the, in the American context, the establishment clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And now by incorporation states can't create a law establishing a religion either. I think that means what it says. We aren't going to have a state church, the Church of Oregon, the Church of Arkansas. We aren't going to have a national church. Otherwise there is a lot of freedom that states and localities and the national government has to do to, for instance, fund religious schools to protect religious pacifists. Uh, They don't have to tear down 1925-era crosses on public land as the separationist
0: groups desire us to do. Yeah. In chapter six, you make the case that regular people must be free to express their religious convictions in the public square. Absolutely. He had this philosopher in the late 20th century, John Rawls, who basically
1: said, look, people of faith have no business making religious arguments in the public square. They ought to only argue based on reason and science and evidence and that sort of thing. Well, I think that kind of sets a game, right? I I think Christians, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has every right to advocate for civil rights based on biblical arguments, based on theological arguments. I think pro-life Americans have every right to make theological arguments against abortion. Now sometime prudentially, we should recognize if we're trying to convince non-Christians, we might wanna make other arguments based on science, based on shared moral standards,
0: but we have every right to bring our faith into the public square. You even make the argument that Jewish and Christian thought compels us to speak out, to take action. Oh, I think that's
1: absolutely right. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, we have a duty to, to be salt and light in the city, in whichever city that is. And so, I'm not saying in this context in America is special. It would be the same message for Christians in England, Christians in France, um, everywhere. Christians and Jews, for that matter, have a responsibility to advocate for peace and justice and equality in, in in the public square.
0: We're going to pause for a moment because the rain is starting. So we're going to move just inside so we can get out of the rain. All right, we'll let's pick it do up that. there okay we are now safe inside out of the rain uh, mark uh, you have participated with us on a case that we worked on out of arkansas involving a ten commandments monument you served as an expert witness for us thanks for that well oh, happy to do it yeah the case is ongoing it's still being litigated apparently we'll see a
1: a, a courtroom in october i believe the plan is um, the thing was going before COVID, and then COVID just put the absolute kibosh on it. So this is a great example of the perverse understanding of the separation of church and state that some people read into the First Amendment. So Arkansas de- decided to put a monument of the Ten Commandments on the State House grounds. This monument is exactly like the monument on the Texas State House grounds that was found to be constitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court. But nevertheless, in light of this precedent, the, initially the Freedom from Religion Foundation people said this cannot stand. This monument must be torn down. It must be destroyed, something like that. And so Arkansas brought me in as an expert witness. And one of the things they wanted me to show, and I think I showed this in my expert report, is that we have a long history in America that you can trace back to the 18th century, um, but a bazillion monuments with religious images on them, with religious Text with biblical text, with text from the, the the Quran and elsewhere, and I do emphasize this in my report that over the last 20 years, what we see is many states have adopted monuments on public land with religious imageries or symbols or language from other religions. So, for instance, the Ohio Holocaust Memorial has a big old Star of David in it. And of course, there again, the Freedom From Religion Foundation people, because they aren't just anti-Christian, they're anti-all religion. And they said, you can't do this. And fortunately, Ohio just ignored them and they can go visit (laughs) the memorial today. And again, something like the Ten Commandments is particularly innocuous, right? The Jews accept the the commandments, Christians accept the commandments, even Muslims accept the commandments. And this is a version of the commandments that's not easily identifiable with any one tradition. So there's just no question that the Establishment Clause permits the erection of monuments of the Ten Commandments and things like that on public land. In
0: Chapter 7, you highlight a significant shift in academia and government attitudes toward religion. Tell us what you're seeing. How are things changing? You know, so as you will
1: know, back in the 1990s, when the U.S. Supreme Court stepped away from a very nice test developed by the Liberal Justice William Brennan in 1963 that gave a great deal of protection to religious liberty, the U.S. Supreme Court stepped away from this, this test, Democrats and Republicans could come together and pass the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, signed overwhelmingly, by. signed by Bill Clinton, yeah. 97 to 3 in the Senate, unanimously in the House, to restore this test. So back in the 90s, everyone supported religious liberty. In the 21st century, progressives have generally drifted away from it. Now, they'll still support the right of a Native American to use peyote in a religious ceremony, but when it comes to small business owners who have religious convictions about participating in same-sex wedding ceremonies, say, when it comes to pharmacists who have convictions against against providing abortifacients, no mercy whatsoever, right? These people have to be re-educated. They have to be driven out of business. And so we've seen a lot of cases along these lines. And you see law professors who are writing books like, why tolerate religion? Why is religion special? You believe you have to um, have the Eucharist. I believe I should wear my Chicago baseball hat. Why, um, why Why? should your view be favored over my view? So I document several of these arguments and I respond to them. I'd like to think I'd demolish them. And I do want to emphasize the argument is religious liberty for all. This is not a pro-Christian book. I'm unapologetically a Christian. I'll share my faith with everyone. But from the perspective of religious liberty, we have to insist that every American be permitted to worship God according to the dictates of conscience and act upon his or her religious convictions whenever possible. And if we lose that all liberty quickly goes away. You know, the liberties are interconnected, they absolutely are, and religious liberty um, was oftentimes referred to by the American founders as a sacred right of conscience. I think it is, I don't want to have to choose between them, but I think it is the most important liberty, and it certainly is is, is tied intimately together with the freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, freedom of press. Yeah, so everyone, even if you're a complete atheist, you have a great, great incentive, a, a great reason for protecting religious liberty.
0: Are you hopeful for America?
1: I am. I tend to be an optimist, and um, God is omnipotent, and, and you know, who knows what he has in mind for America. My prayer is revival. Um, I, I love the organization you work for, First Liberty, Alliance Defending Freedom, Beckett Fund. We have a lot of great outfits out there fighting for religious liberty for all Americans. We have some great um, political leaders that. You know, I think I'm hopeful at all sorts of
0: levels. All right. Mark David Hall, thank you so much for chatting with us. Great hearing from you. Great reading through your book and and getting your view of the America's founding and the the intent the founders had for religious freedom. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Hey, if you would please subscribe to First Liberty Live. You can go to FirstLibertyLive.com and click on the subscribe button. Uh, we've, We've got so many special episodes coming up that you won't want to miss. So if you subscribe, you'll get a notification each time a new one comes out. First Liberty Institute is fighting for what matters most.